Welcome everybody, this is the University of Applied Research and Development. I'm Craig with the Emergency Response and Risk Management podcast here with Brent Woodworth, who is a crisis management specialist, global expert. Welcome, Brent. Lovely to have you here. Thank you very, very much, Craig. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Just before we started, Brent was telling me that he has been to Indonesia during the Aceh tsunami, during that time there, the earthquake, and just uh, an amazing, amazing thing that you had to do here to bring everything together. Would you mind just winding back and sharing with us that experience of landing on the ground, what it was like and what you did? Because it was, for me, it sounds like an incredible response. Well, no, I thank you very much and, and appreciate the chance to speak with you and your students. Um, this was back on Boxing Day when the earthquake occurred on December 26th is when it happened. This is the Indian Ocean tsunami. Um, we clearly, I was running a team, an international crisis team for the IBM Corporation. And I had a group of about 600 people working with me. Um, and we would respond to major catastrophic events throughout the world. And when this occurred, um, we were working with and asked by the government of Indonesia, along with India, uh, Sri Lanka and, Tha and Thailand to get involved and help each of those governments in responding and recovering from the impact of this uh, incredible disaster. Um, we flew out pretty quickly. Uh, I was in Bandache <clears throat> about six days after the tsunami hit. Um, and so uh, my first flight actually went through uh, India. We went into Chennai, India, and I set up operations there with 150 people to work with the government of India on the damage that had hit Chennai, the Nicobar and Adaman Islands as well, uh, to get people evacuated from those locations and to start addressing uh, food supply, medical needs, and support in Chennai. Uh, then flew right away into um, Jakarta, used Jakarta as a base of operations, and then up um, through, uh, through several different areas into Banda Aceh. Um, and forgive me if I don't remember every town correctly as we go, because I remember we, we had to stop in um, a little place where the emergency flights to, to not, not to Nam, but um, Madan, I can't remember. There's a smaller place that the jet would refuel. It was a DC-10 filled with all relief workers like myself and my team. And then eventually we would get into to Banda Aceh. Um, when we got there, we worked again with the government of Indonesia, um, with official government folks, as well as the military. And General Babang, who headed up all Northern Indonesian military forces. At the time when this occurred, there was a major civil war still going on within Northern Indonesia between the uh, Northern Indonesian forces in the GAM or the Free, Free Aceh movement. And this had been going on for about 26 years. Uh, and, and like any type of civil unrest or war, it's always a, a tragic event. And the tsunami clearly compounded that. Um, what our team did was we take a look at it from a standpoint of how can we provide aid and relief to all folks that are impacted by the disaster. And a few things became very evident to us. Um, one of them, help was needed in uh, supply chain to get the proper medical goods, the proper food, 
um, coordination with all the different agencies, both military, non-military, responding to provide aid into the area. Um, and then relief even in some of the most remote parts uh, of northern Indonesia, a little town, a village town called Tanam and some other areas, jungle areas, very heavily hit by this. When the tsunami hit, it was first a 9.0 earthquake that occurred. And within 15 minutes, the tsunami wave came in through Banda Aceh. Um, it was a huge event. It was about almost 30 plus feet tall. Um, the shaking was so severe, everybody had gone out of their houses if they weren't injured by the earthquake, sitting down on the ground when they hear this huge crashing noise as the wave is approaching. As the wave starts coming in, it's stirring up the dark black sands on the outside border of the shoreline. So the wave changes color. It's, it's not a blue, pretty ocean wave. It's really a, a dark brackish black color. And it takes everything with it for about seven kilometers as it comes in. Just before it hits the elephants and so forth and other animals who sense it, they start heading for the hills, which is a pretty good sign that you ought to head for the, the hills. Um, the damage was enormous, over 200,000 fatalities. Um, when we did land and get on the ground, unfortunately, there were still bodies everywhere. Um, and uh, not very safe conditions, very difficult conditions to operate in. And again, trying to determine how bad the damage was, helping the injured, getting medical supplies in. Those are some of the first priorities that, that you go through. The next thing that we did of consequence was communication, restoring some of that to remote areas. So we actually flew in um, at the time, satellite dishes back then were big. It's now they're small compact things, but not then. They were 3000 pounds wow. and several feet wide. And we brought in two of them uh, by large Chinook helicopters. Uh, one that we set up outside of the governor's office at the main government buildings in Banda Aceh. The second one, we flew into the jungle, actually into Tanam to be able to connect and work with uh, the variety of NGOs, non-government agencies, relief agencies, humanitarian groups that needed that kind of help and support. And we set up the ability for them to all communicate. We put up a ground station in Germany um, so we could then, via landlines, communicate back through to Jakarta and to the rest of the world as, as needed so everyone could have uh, communications and support. Um, during that time, the, the unrest was still going on. At night, there were firefights at night and many other wow. issues that we were uh, engaged with. My team included some former military experts, logistics experts, and so forth from around the world. Um, so we were aware of how dangerous the conditions were and what needed to be done. Um, at the same time, working with the general uh, where it was appropriate to help, we were, were very involved in that. Um, and uh, a friendship was developed between the general and some of our folks, uh, one of the former sergeant majors that was working for me. Uh, and it was a good relationship because things were dangerous. And if we could help protect him in certain cases and protect other people, we would, we would do that. Um, and that allowed us to be more effective in getting supplies in and, and helping individuals. Some incredible sites in Bond Aceh that we'll never forget. 
not only of the unfortunate fatalities, but the wave itself was so massive that in the area, there's some famous pictures of the cement factory in Banda Aceh, uh, where the wave hit crested over 35 feet, and you can see the damage and destruction. But a, a barge uh, or a ship containing a huge plant for generating power, um, this is a fairly large container or, or a huge ship, it was carried in almost six kilometers inland wow. and ended up settling between all these houses in Banda Aceh. And uh, it, you could pick it up on satellite imagery. It is so large, it, it appeared on all the satellite photos as, as those um, came out. In other areas, everything was destroyed. There was nothing standing in one area, only the mosque withstood it. And it was interesting that the mosque was there because um, it's an open architecture structure, uh, heavy stone, heavy cement, and so the water would go in one side and out the other. And folks then would come uh, and bring their belongings towards the mosque afterwards. It was a gathering place for the community uh, for bo both religious reasons and because it just, it just was. It was the only place standing. Mm. Yet from the air you could see for, for, in essence, kilometers around, absolutely nothing else stood. Um, it was clean to the ground. One other historical fact of interest in the tsunami was what did withstand was there are some older homes that were built in Banda Aceh over a hundred years ago. And over a hundred years ago, they built them on stilts. They knew of the danger of tsunami dangers. And so inland, they were elevated and those homes that were elevated uh, sustained very little, if not no damage whatsoever. It was the modern homes built on the slab bases or just right on the ground area that sustain the majority of, of the damage. So we were there for quite a while, uh, working in that environment, um, helping to, to make this come together. Uh, eventually, um, interfacing with President Adesari, who was the former president of Finland, um, to his credit, uh, and we were able to use a number of software tools called um, Sahana, which is a Sri Lankan word for uh, peace or tranquility. Um, that particular system, it's an, called open source software, it's free software, uh, was developed with our team and other folks and was used to manage a lot of the logistics and a lot of the uh, support services, medical and so forth that were used there and in many other areas that the tsunami impacted. But what President Adesari did in working with the Indonesian government, um, General Bambang and others, is eventually we got both uh, the government of Indonesia and the Free Aceh movement to come to Helsinki um, to sit down and have some uh, peace talks. And they actually signed a peace accord in Helsinki um, wow. to the credit of President Adesari, and he received the Nobel Peace Prize for that. Um, so quite an accomplishment, and um, their pieces remained ever since that agreement was signed. Um, that conflict was resolved, and and no longer is that an issue in Indonesia. So it was. Some, what you learn is that even in a disaster, mm. in a terrible crisis like that, if you find ways to help both sides and to work together um, for a common goal of feeding humanity, um, sometimes you can accomplish some amazing things like 
get a peace accord signed or get different groups to do that. Um, we also face that in other areas. Um, when we were working in Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka had a, a challenge with the Tamil Tigers and the government of Sri Lanka. Um, and again, we were using our software systems and others to help feed and manage and do that. There we were working with the president of Sri Lanka at the time and his cabinet. Um, our team also provided both in Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and in India, uh, thousands of personal computer devices, um, software, huge teams of experts to develop customized systems for each of the governments to be used in managing through the disaster, all at no charge. Everything we, we did was, was all free. Um, we were never looking for anything back, uh, nor would there ever be any future charges for what we did. We trained hundreds of students at the time how to start gathering information about um, the properties that were lost. So with the tsunami coming in, sweeping everything clean to rebuild records as to who lived where, which mm -hmm. properties were where, that, and understanding who was missing, displaced persons, medical issues, all of that needed to be gathered. And again, we had designed and developed systems to do that. Um, the Tamil Tiger issue was a little bit more difficult. It was close to getting resolved. And then unfortunately, there were some uh, incidents that occurred and um, it was not peacefully resolved necessarily. Um, we were saddened to see that, uh, but we continued our humanitarian efforts no matter what to, to try to resolve those issues. In Thailand, we were working uh, in Phuket. Uh, Phuket was in the news media a lot because it's a resort area. Mm. Um, even though it received a lot of uh, news media attention, it was not impacted um, to the magnitude that Northern Indonesia was or some of the other locations. Um, the worst damage was Indonesia. The second was Sri Lanka and then India and then Phuket. Um, so these types of issues I'm talking about and the work we did was repeated in each one of these countries. Um, so we were there for several months, back and forth between each, each one. And um, I will say that the nicest accommodations that we had was, were whenever we came back to Jakarta. And it was sort of nice to once in a while get out of the, the very difficult areas and all the psychological issues that we would deal with and the physical challenges that we had and uh, Jakarta became our general base of operations to sort of recoup, manage, work with government leaders, and then go back out again. So um, anyway, that was one experience of one major disaster, probably one of the largest ones that we ever managed uh, globally. What an amazing case study for us to hear and to understand the, just the magnitude. And um, Brent, did you say it's part of IBM's crisis team? So yeah, it, 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 it was. Um, when I was there, uh, I, I retired at the end of um, 2007. But previous to that, I had been at the company for 32 years. And um, something very unique is we had developed an international crisis response team. Um, and this being in a, you know, a publicly held corporation was mm. unique in the world. Um, mm. We were really the only ones of uh, to do that of that magnitude, the level of commitment by, uh, by the chairman and by the corporation to support our team was, was wonderful. Mm. And uh, I, I had the, uh, the pleasure of running the team 
and setting a lot of the dynamics and the rules that we worked under. Uh, and we made sure that when we went in, we always wanted to understand before we got on the plane, we needed to understand cultural and social issues of the countries that we were mm -hmm. going into. Um, we wanted to be highly respectful of those social and cultural needs. Um, we usually traveled with uh, a group of trauma docs. I would bring them out of Harvard, actually. Um, and in the case of Indonesia and so forth in Sri Lanka, we had three or four different um, outstanding trauma doctors that would go with us to be able to help us develop programs for the children and the families that were impacted, um, the, the psychological and physical damage, um, and understanding the, the medical needs and the operational needs. Um, we also had our experts in international humanitarian work with the UN um, and with the, the different UN agencies like World Health, World Food, um, those operations. We also understood working with military and working with various embassies. Uh, and usually whenever I went in, we made sure we were in contact with senior heads of state, the, the president, um, senior military officials, elected officials at the highest level uh, before we would go in. We wanted to make sure we were invited. We were never there to in, in, intrude by any means. Mm -hmm. um, we wanted to make sure they understood everything we did was no charge. There were never, they would never ever see a bill for any of our services or anything that we were donating or working on. And another key part of our mission was to, excuse me, transfer skills. So while we would do no harm and try to get things back going again, we tried to transfer the skills, knowledge, and capabilities so that when we left, there was additional uh, mitigation and resiliency skills uh, to be able to cope in the future with future events um, more effectively. Um, and that was our mission. So many different things that you contribute when you go in and, and respond in a really in a crisis situation. I wanted to ask, I noted down about the rebuilding the records of home ownership. Every time I talk to someone, there's something, a light bulb goes on in, in my mind. And I think, I bet people don't think about that. Can you, can you remember some other things like that, that maybe you didn't think you would handle or you would help with when you walked into a situation, but then they popped up and you, you helped with, like the rebuilding of records? Well, you know, one of the things that we learned in so many countries, and I, I, I managed about... Um, 70 events in 50 countries during the time I was doing this all, all around the world. Um, and we learned to be um, fairly creative at times and uh, come up with innovative solutions to problems. And so we would look at problems or challenges, whether it be the one about reuniting lost families or managing inventories and we would find how could we do this in a simple manner that could be easily managed and understood? How could we take a complex problem and break it down into pieces that were manageable? And let me give you a good example. And that was a um, number of years before that. It, earthquakes uh, do a lot of damage and you know, in this case, the tsunami followed, but another example was a major earthquake um, in Turkey a number of years before. And that was in a, a place called um, Izmit and Golcek. This is 
east of Istanbul, across the Bosphorus in, on the Asia side. Um, and it was a fairly large earthquake and devastating uh, for the government. And at that time, we were asked by the um, Ministry of Health for, for the government of Turkey if we could come in and literally take over uh, the managing of the receipt uh, of all medical supplies, um, medical support equipment, all medicines, and even help in setting up and managing field hospitals throughout the impacted area. Um, so quite a challenge of, of pretty big magnitude. So when we got there and we started taking a look at what we could do to handle the warehouse operations, one of the things we decided, well, we had a good software system, but it was written in English. And could we convert it into Turkish? So on the fly, with the help of a lot of great folks, we actually rewrote it so that it could be on the screens in both Turkish and English. And then we set it so it would work with the medical requirements for all the different types of drugs. And there are thousands and thousands of types of drugs. But one of the challenges that we had that was unique is as donations came in, they're in all different kinds of languages. So if you get um, you know, something that's acetaminophen or whatever, it may be in Chinese, it may be in, in Greek, it may be in Russian, it may be in English. Um, and we didn't have people that could read all those languages. Um, and it's a real challenge. So how do I sort these out and what do we do? So we realized that W, the World Health Organization has 26 or 27 major drug categories that they define as the primary categories. And when I say primary, it's high level like cardiac drugs. So for your heart or pulmonary for your lungs or antibiotics, those are all categories. Of course, under antibiotics, there are hundreds of antibiotics, but antibiotics is a category unto itself. We realized that in trying to sort these drugs into the warehouse, if we could change a system so that we weren't using all the names, but just the major categories, mm. um, we would be better off. And then we decided because we didn't have that many skilled pharmacists to work with, to read the labels, we could at least look at the, the base part of it to try to determine is it an antibiotic or not. There were ways that we could determine that. And so how do we sort that? Well, we decided to use colors and symbols because if you can't read the language and you're gonna get a bunch of soldiers to come in and help put stuff in a certain corner, I can tell you to put all the blue triangles into that corner or all the yellow circles into another one. Right. That's how we started. So we were using printers to print out literally blue triangles, yellow circles, red dots. And then we changed it we pulled down an international symbol for like a picture of a heart, a picture of lungs, um, a mortar and pestle or something for antibiotics. And we created and started using those pictures as ways to sort all the drugs. And we used that on the shipping containers when we were sending it to other warehouses in the field and to field hospitals. So at a minimum, we could provide the doctors with a cache of antibiotics, a cache of analgesics, a cache right. of pulmonary medicine. Um, 
this came to a big surprise to the, um, the chief surgeon for the third fleet of the U.S. Navy who had come in to help <laughs> and to other doctors. They were amazed that we came up with this system. WHO was just like, wow, how did you do this? Um, and it worked incredibly well. Uh, and was a very success. It's a good example of an innovative, simple solution mm. that, that you can use at different times. And um, so we did those kinds of things with that. We did different ways of educating people on, you know, how to how to relocate folks. The issue with the homes and the properties, we came up with ways to get that in Sri Lanka. Um, you have to take a family history when you're trying to get the people back together again. It's not like first name, last name, address. That doesn't work. It's more annotating information about the family as a history and then putting that together to figure out where they live and who the other family members are. So we had to be very uh, willing to adapt. We didn't make right. We didn't make the country use the system. We adapted the system to the country. Right. And, and you so did we it on were, the fly. On the fly, we were always doing that. Um, and then same thing with our psychologists. We didn't just use a, a UNICEF platform for handling the distress of children. We would understand the details of uh, what was happening with young children and what could we do within the laws, the culture, the social environment to help those children recover. Um, one other example I'll give you uh, of a challenging disaster was Pakistan. Um, and this was after in the US we had Hurricane Katrina. Shortly after in October was a um, massive earthquake in Northern P Pakistan in the Kashmir region. Um, and uh, this is Ahmedabad. This is the area where bin Laden was and so forth. So, we came in and, and uh, actually my very first meeting was with Prime Minister Aziz. We, you know, got in, I don't know, two in the morning or something like that. And uh, next thing I know, I'm sitting in the Prime Minister's office and chatting with him about what can be done to help provide support to all these folks that were impacted in, in the region. And the unique thing there, I'll tell you, there were several, but one of them was based on the lessons we learned in places like Turkey and many others, we realized that one of the challenges in international disasters is you have the ability, you have to have the ability to say no to certain things. Right. And most countries previously would accept any donation of any type coming in with the fear that if they said we don't want something, they wouldn't get the other items that they needed. Right. We didn't believe that was true. And we felt, at least my opinion was that we would be stronger if we could identify the specific top 10 items or categories that were needed. And if we published to the world that we needed this and we told them what we didn't want, we would be better off. So we made that recommendation to the prime minister and sure enough, that's what was done. And so a list of the top items that were needed, which include winterized tents, blankets, propane heaters, cots, there were certain, with certain specifications uh, on them, um, that went out. What we didn't want was the one item that is almost never required in a disaster around the world is clothes. 
um, because in a disaster, you pick, typically can get the clothes out of the, the rubble, whatever the damage is. They can be washed and used. And, and I'll, I'll give you an, a, a challenge, like for example, in, in Banda Aceh, I mean, the weather can be pretty hot and humid at times. And someone from the United States, you know, donating a Brooks Brothers suit or, you know, a wool coat right. is not a very practical thing to have. Um, even more so in Sri Lanka, which is, you know, pretty much humid and warm all the time. And so when those supplies of clothes would come in, you know, as a relief worker, we would, we would end up at the time, we would have to bury them or we would burn them. There was no use for the stuff. It actually, unfortunately, was taking up space and cost in handling donations that weren't really targeted the way they should. I didn't want to have that problem in Pakistan. So the prime minister followed that, uh, to his credit, um, that word went out. And indeed, we got just what we asked for. And mainland China provided the majority of the winterized tents. Uh, we were getting blankets from Spain and Italy. Um, there were certain countries that each contributed. Um, the United States was great at logistics, bringing in um, multiple Chinook helicopters and other helicopters to do all the sorties in and out, which were desperately needed because of how remote and how high this region was in the Himalayas. Um, and so it was a great collaborative, cooperative, cooperative effort by, again, simplifying it and being very specific as to what was needed. Um, the other piece in the Pakistan one is it also showed how corporations, not just IBM at the time, but other corporations, when you ask them for in-kind donations and support, um, they will respond in, in a wonderful manner. Um, at the hospital at the capital, a place called the PIMS Hospital in, in Pakistan, um, that's normally a 250-bed hospital for children. But at the time, there was maybe a thousand children that were in the hospital. Unfortunately, when this earthquake occurred, school was in session and a lot of the schools had um, stone walls that weren't necessarily tied together with chicken wire or anything and cement roofs. And the stones would fall away, the cement roofs would come down and there were massive crushing injuries on the children. And um, the result was a huge volume of, of crippled children, very sad, and a huge number of children that were subject to amputations and so forth, uh, of limbs, very, very severe injuries. But we also, when we came in late at night, um, the chief surgeon brought me to a ward and showed me where there was about 100 children there. And he says, uh, Brent, you have to help me. Um, and I said, Doctor, what, what can I do? He says, all these children are going to die. They all have tetanus. And he says, and I don't have any of the critical vaccine that I need. Um, we're completely out of that, to because there is a vaccine for, for tetanus. It's like a, a live vaccine that they can give. And we, we don't have it. And if I don't get it, you know, within a certain number of hours, these children don't have a chance. We're always very careful what we state. We're never going to go in and promise something that we can't do. Um, but I did tell the, the doctor that I would do my best to try to find it. We'll see what we can, what we can do to help, and then we'll, we'll get back to him. When I left, uh, got on our sat phones and so forth, and we called back. Um, I always had someone here in the U.S. was 
really a lady named Terry Pond, who's great, who did the command and control for us, our operational side to coordinate resources. I got on the phone with one of the vice presidents uh, of IBM and, and corporate community relations. And my comment was, you have to find this drug. Um, it wasn't a matter of cost or anything like that. We, I mean, we could have gotten a, a corporate jet. We could, we could pay for it. That wasn't the issue. It was finding it. And after making numerous calls, they found Bayer Corporation in, in Germany actually had a supply of this. And Bayer responded by saying, not only are we going to provide that to you, we're going to put it on our own jet, and we're going to get you a dose that's several times what you thought for the number of people, and it's wow. going to be there in the morning. Amazing. And sure enough, they, they did, and those children, I, I didn't get a chance. I was too busy doing other things to go back into the hospital, but we know the dose did get there and the doctor got what he was, what he was so desperately needing. But the lesson there is in how you can work mm. across multiple corporations um, from a humanitarian side and the capability and strength of the private sector mm. in, in this relief is tremendous. Um, and, and so we built over many, many years, the, this network of working with private sector folks, we also built a huge network uh, in working with academic institutions. Uh, and they were equally important because of the connections they had with governments and their ability to provide high level PhD experts in certain critical areas, be it structural, um, be it logistics or analytical um, or, or other areas. Now, I'm not saying we didn't have our challenges. Um, we had plenty of those in different countries, sometimes based on cultural issues, based on laws. We found many challenges in getting things through customs, things that were held up that we just wish were not held up. Mm. Um, so we came up with new ways to do emergency powers provisions for governments so they could move things much quicker that are, that are needed um, to alleviate conflict. But there were still always political issues in almost every, every country we dealt with. And that was, that was, you know, not unexpected. And that was fine. We got, we got through that. So. With so many moving pieces and such a wide, a wide range of things that you need to think about, develop creative responses for, what was your preparation coming into this role? Uh, you know, it, 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 that's interesting. I, I, I would like to tell you that when I was a, a young boy scout, I picked all that up, but that's, that, that wasn't it. I, I had always believed in the, the need to give back and um, to help other individuals. And in IBM, one of my roles as a, as a manager going up was um, I was in charge of a lot of the data centers that were providing emergency backup services. So that if you were one of our clients and your equipment was damaged or destroyed, you could actually go to what's called a hot site in information technology terms and bring your, your work there and bring it back up. But what always was sitting in the back of my head is that if we only save the data center, what happens to the rest of the company? What happens to the employees? What happens to their family? Because just bringing back a data center isn't going to help a, a company or a community or a country survive. We need to do more than that. Um, and what about the role of, of community relations and what could be done from a, a Fortune 5 company at the time to, to really 
step in and, and help around the world where it has these relationships and, and uh, make, a, make a difference. So that really sparked me to, to get involved and, and want to do this. And so I, you know, it took me a number of years to prove the concept within our company uh, because people are pretty skeptical. Uh, but once that was done, and I also responded to almost every major um, domestic U.S. event, um, the, the first one was uh, some civil unrest here in California. The next big one was actually the, the bombing in Oklahoma City um, after that. And then you could look at a long list, including 9-11 um, in New York City. We were there for a long time, did a huge amount of work in, in that. Uh, tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, um, you know, in, in not only in Asia Pacific, but in Latin America, South America, um, just pretty much all over the world. Um, and our skills got better. My skills got better. We learned what worked, what didn't work. And, um, and I, I don't take the credit. I think it was because I had a great team. And I think bringing in such phenomenal people with backgrounds in this and then being able to, able to identify those folks that really had this in their heart and their desire to do it and to help and make a difference and pulling that small core team together. Because we had a core team that was always the key part then we would expand it. Um, but we had a, a very well-defined mission and we had great support and uh, it, it, made, it made a big difference for, for us. So that's how I got involved. Does the department or that, that initiative still exist in IBM? Uh, I wish it did. Um, no, it, it, it doesn't. Uh, I think we had a, a very unique set of skills and capabilities because I had a lot of folks from the outside. Um, and companies change and direction changes and so forth. Um, you know, I continued to, to do that uh, afterwards with a number of folks in different areas and still involved with um, UN agencies on some of these things. I, I am now trying to get involved where I can in helping um, National Academy of Sciences. I do things with them. I do some things with State Department where, where it's appropriate to try to negotiate and help the Asian countries and exercises and preparing for disasters. I've done a lot of mitigation work um, and helped write a lot of things that are used by the government here and um, key reports that are used by Congress and around the world as far as benefits for, for mitigation. Um, and I'm really hopeful that we can get corporations together in the future to do this in a more of a joint effort because I think their capabilities and the leverage that they bring uh, is incredible, is, is unmatched when they really put their mind to it. So if someone was looking to develop a career and wanted to give their time in this sort of way that you've done, what would you say are some learning experiences, some qualifications, some training that would be really valuable for them? Well, I, I think spending some time, um, you can get degrees now, of course, in emergency management. Uh, there weren't that many when I was starting in, in this area. But now there's a number of college and universities around the world that provide uh, focuses in, in emergency management or related fields to that. And that, that's a good start. Um, doing um, some time working with local governments, local cities, um, you know, to help 
support an emergency operations team or emergency support efforts. That's good. One of the things that I did after IBM is for a number of years, I created, I've created other foundations. I created the um, LA Emergency Preparedness Foundation and we developed and ran for the city of Los Angeles, their emergency um, business operations center for, for many years and um, still involved in those kinds of things. Actually, we're, we're pretty, pretty busy right now, unfortunately with the pandemic going on. Mm -hmm. um, we're still doing a lot of work through, through that foundation and, and we continue to do so. Um, but I would encourage folks to do that, any kind of an apprenticeship. Um, and then if they're interested, look at the corporations that are out there that have corporate community relations programs and see if you can get involved in any of those things to help out. There's also nonprofits like the International Red, uh, Red Cross, Red Crescent organization, um, UN agencies that exist. Um, and each country has something like that. Um, that they may want to spend some time getting involved in or, or helping helping with. Um, our Sahana uh, Foundation still is, is running the software one. It actually, we currently support 27 countries. Um, the UN uh, does run some of their organization on it. And the International Red Cross, Red Crescent, their resource management system is uh, Sahana as well. So that's one group that I was part of developing and I was chairman of for many years that is uh, still operating in the area of open source uh, development of software to help. So you have to be a little bit creative, get out there, don't be, you know, discouraged uh, and, and you'll find ways to, to get involved. Brent, I really want to thank you for your time, for your generous use of time. I know you're busy with what's going on in the world right now, but also want to thank you for what you've done over many years to help many countries and many communities. And um, obviously right here where I am in Indonesia, the, the lasting legacy that you've you left here for us as well in Indonesia. So thank you so much, Brent. Well, you're welcome. I absolutely love the people of Indonesia. It was such a pleasure uh, working there and, and being with the folks there. And if there's ever anything I can do to help you, your students or the government of Indonesia, please uh, make sure you call on me. Thank you so much.